Our loving Heavenly Father, as we once again come to hear your word, we ask the Holy Spirit to open our hearts, open our minds as we contemplate the wonderful things you have done for us and how you sought us and reached for us. Amen. We thank you, dear Lord, for the messages we're receiving today because we know they're coming from you. We pray that it be blessed once more as we have Sean speak to us. We ask this through Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you. I'd like to share a few more thoughts from this morning that I didn't get to share then, but I'd like to share just a few more things before we get into this afternoon's topic. There are certain times where you're reading a book or you're reading the Bible and it's kind of just like an aha moment. And one of those was probably back close to 10 years ago when I was reading a book by Ty Gibson called See With New Eyes. How many of you have read that book? There was something in that book that totally spoke to my heart and it gave me a, an incredible sense of God's love. It's one of the most important realizations that I've come to. I don't remember the line exactly, but he said something along the lines of there is no greater realization than to be fully known yet fully loved. There is no greater realization than to be fully known yet fully loved. Isn't that powerful? God knows every single thing about us. So we don't, it doesn't do us any good to put on the mascara, going back to the story this morning. It doesn't do us any good to try to dress up to impress God because he knows exactly who we are. And yet he still loves us. I also want to share the story that is connected to the thought this morning. This is an experience that Ellen White had. It's a little bit of a lengthy story. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I just want to share some highlights with you. This is an experience she had in Australia back in 1894. She is recounting this visit she had enjoyed. She said, We were rejoiced to see Brother Radley at this meeting. He came on Sunday and remained until the meeting closed Wednesday. We have felt great anxiety for him. His wife embraced the truth first, and he came along more slowly. He was very cautious in regard to committing himself. We visited him and saw that he was a man of few words and seldom attended our meetings. I talked with him personally in regard to his responsibilities as a husband and father. He has two boys, little lads, and three girls. We held meetings at Brother Radley's house, but he manifested so little interest in them that they were discontinued. His heart was not inclined to fully accept the faith. But I talked with them, listen to this, but I talked with him as though he was fully with us, presenting before him his responsibilities. I told him what he could do to advance the knowledge of the truth. He assented to it all by a mere response. This was in 1894. Brother Starr was with me after we left. He said, I was surprised to hear you talk to him as though he were fully with us. 
If he himself does not work on the Sabbath, his hired help works. I answered, I talked to him just in the right way. He felt himself far from deserving the confidence I placed in him. Thus, from time to time, we visited him, and he always treated, treated us courteously, courteously, but did not fully identify himself with us. Yet I always talked with him as one who knew and loved the truth, always laying out plans with him whereby he might be a laborer, laborer together with God. I said to him, Brother Radley, the Lord wants you to cooperate with him. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. And he looks to you to be his human agent through whom he can communicate truth to others. He will use you through the strongest principles of your mental and moral, cap moral capabilities to reach other minds. One night the Lord gave me a message for him and I rose at midnight and wrote out page after page. I knew the Lord was calling for him. I sent the message to him to be read to him and his neighbor, brother so-and-so, read the matter to him, and he said, why did she write such a communication to me? I am not a believer. I had been shown that we become too easily discouraged over the souls who do not seem to take hold at once. But those who minister must not fail nor be discouraged. Christian motives demand us to act with a steady purpose and undying interest and an ever-increasing importunity for the soul, for souls whom Satan is seeking to destroy. And then she writes a little later on, Oh, how happy I am to state that Brother Radley has come out. Decided firm and true, he is now one of the leaders in such and such a church. Amen. And then she finally says this, I have placed this case before you in full in order that you may know the manner in which I have worked. This we have done in many cases with the best results. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful model for you and I? Amen. To labor for souls as though they were with us Amen. and to place our confidence and faith and trust in them. One more, two more quotes, sorry, before we... We have another prayer, and then we get into the, the next message. But my, my brother Arnett reminded me of this one as well. This one, th this, this just encapsulates beautifully the, the, the method that she used in that beautiful experience with Brother Radley. Now, I've lost it. I thought I highlighted it. No, I have it. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Listen to this. You ready for it? If, if we wish to do good to souls, I'm at the right place, right, Arnett? If we, do, if we wish to do good to souls, our success with these souls will be in proportion to their belief in our belief and appreciation of them. Amen. Wow. If, let me read that again. If we wish to do good to souls, our success with these souls will be in proportion to their belief and our belief and appreciation of them. Wow. That is from the Gospel Herald, May 1, 1898. 
our success with souls will only be in proportion to how much they understand that we believe and appreciate them. You know, we get into this mentality sometimes that it's us versus them. You know, I am the conqueror, and they are the ones to be conquered. And we, we think of our evangelism in that way sometimes. But, you know, it's not us versus them, it's us with them. Amen. Isn't that what the gospel said? Emmanuel, God with us. One last quotation. And then we'll pray. And then we'll get into our, our topic. This one is a little bit unrelated, but I just want to bring you some good news. Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. Isn't that powerful? Nothing is apparently more helpless, yet more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on the merits of the Savior. By prayer, by the study of His Word, by faith in His abiding presence, the weakest of human beings may live in contact with the living Christ and He will hold them by a hand that will never let go. Amen. Amen. It's beautiful. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would remind us first of all of our nothingness so that we might appreciate the value you place upon us. There are two ditches that we can fall into. The first is that we don't feel our nothingness and therefore we can't appreciate the value you place upon us. The other is that we feel our nothingness completely and yet we can't get our eyes off ourselves to see the grace that you have for us. So Lord, we want to recognize our nothingness so that we might fully embrace the value you place upon us. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Albert Einstein is considered to be one of the most brilliant minds in the 20th century. I don't know if you've ever heard of Albert Einstein, but uh, the gentleman who introduced to us the famous formula E equals MC squared. And if you can tell me what that even means, I'll be very, be very impressed. Um, the implications of it were tremendous. The general theory of relativity is something that was absolutely earth-shattering when it was presented to the point that Einstein tried actually to kind of fudge the data because he knew the conclusion that it would lead to. Did you realize that? Einstein tried to say, wait a minute, I messed up here. This is not really what it means because he was so worried about where the, the facts would lead. Where would the facts lead? They would lead to God. They would lead to God because it led to something known as the Big Bang Theory. Now, you and I, when we hear that theory, we say, oh, man, that's a terrible idea. 
But did you know that the Big Bang Theory has been one of the most incredible evidences for the existence of God? The Big Bang Theory teaches us that this universe started from a Big Bang billions of years ago and all started in this little, little, little speck that expanded. And see, when scientists discovered that the universe was expanding, they realized that it must have had to start at some point. Before this, they thought the universe was static. They thought it was just, it was not expanding. It was just always been the same size. They thought it had been eternal. And when they realized this, they said, oh my goodness, we have a problem on our hands. And Einstein himself did not want to believe that the universe was expanding when they discovered Hubble was actually the one who, through the telescope, discovered that, he said, I don't believe it. You're going to have to show me yourself. And so he went to California, and he went and looked at it, and he said, you know, I have to, I have to bow down to the truth that the universe is expanding, and therefore it had to have a beginning. And those things that have a beginning must have a beginner to start them. This was Einstein, one of his great contributions because of his theory of general, his general theory of relativity. You know, Einstein also had a passion for the violin. Did you know that? He was actually a very accomplished violinist. He hadn't always been that way, however, when he was a young man, much like many of us who have taken music lessons, he didn't want to practice. His mother would try to make him practice, insist that he practice. And no matter what she did, no matter how much arm twisting she did, he just did not want to play the violin. He did not want to practice. Until one day, one day, he was walking through a room and he just all of a sudden stopped in his tracks. And for the first time, he had heard Mozart's sonatas. And he found a passion and a fire for the violin. And he picked it up and he never put it down, as it were. He had found the passion because he heard the music of Mozart. Reflecting on that experience a number of years later, Einstein had these very, very poignant words. He said, I have come to the conclusion, I have realized that love is a better teacher than a sense of duty. Very profound. I have realized that love is a better teacher than a sense of duty. I wonder how many of us here have discovered that. I wonder how many of us here are still trying to be taught and motivated by a sense of duty. How many of us are living our Christian lives trying to measure up, trying to fulfill certain sets of duties? We need to take a page out of Einstein's book. We need to take a sheet off his score and realize that we need to hear the music of Mozart. Open your Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. If you were to pin me down and ask me what is your absolute favorite Bible verse and I were forced to have to choose just one, I think this one would stand out over and above all the rest. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writing in conjunction with Timothy, he has these words to share. 
In verse 12, we notice what Paul says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may know that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, some of the versions say, you know, if, you, if it seems like we're out of our minds, if it seems like we're just bouncing off the walls, he says, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. So Paul and Timothy... My dad talked about a little bit last night about the apostles. They were turning the world upside down. They were just absolutely on fire. We might, some of you people might call them religious nuts. Usually that has a bad connotation, but these gentlemen, and no doubt many ladies, were sold out for God. They were on fire and passionate and excited and motivated. They didn't have to wonder, what am I going to do tomorrow? You know? Why would I want to get up in the morning? They couldn't wait to get up and out of bed because they had something to share. They had something to present and to give to the world. You know, some of us are struggling with motivation. Some of us literally have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. But Paul, as it were, had a hop in his step. There was something that got him excited. He gives the answer in the next verse. He says, For the love of Christ does what? The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ constrains us. Many of us, when we hear that word constrain, we think, oh, it holds them back. But that is not what constrain means. Constrain means to push forward, to, to, to get a hold of and to motivate. You see, restrain is to hold back. But to constrain is to compel or to excite or to motivate. And Paul says... The love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. It excites us. It puts the hop in our step. You've read, no doubt, many of the challenges that Paul went through during his life. Boy, if there's, there's one guy who had a lot of stuff thrown at him. What is it? What is it? 1 Corinthians chapter, or is it 2 Corinthians 11? Is that where it is? Where he talks about all the things he's gone through and he says, and that's not even the half of it. Say, you know, I've been beaten more times, I've been shipwrecked, I've been whatever, all this. But, and yet, Paul kept on pushing forward. I mean, he was there in prison, wasn't he? In Philippi. And what is he doing? He's singing. He's singing while he's imprisoned. You and I, at least let me speak for myself, you and I would be doing anything but singing, perhaps. We would be there and we'd be moping. Oh man, how did this happen to me? But Paul says, no, I am rejoicing. I am singing a song. I think it's partly because of what I hinted at this morning. Paul understood that he deserved nothing but non-existence. He understood that there was nothing in life that he deserved except for, paradoxically, death. He deserved nothing good. And so that's why he could just be singing in prison. And Paul says, for the love of Christ compels us. Amen. Friends, are you living a compelled life by the love of Christ? Amen. Are you living a life that is motivated and fueled by this wonderful agape love of Jesus? This morning we had seven words. Actually, we had 14 words. We're going to have seven more this afternoon. I, this is the first time I've ever done the Lael Caesar seven-word method, but I just feel compelled to do it, okay? Here are seven words for you this afternoon, all right? Let's see if I can remember the ones that I thought of. 
Here they are. Faith comes, faith comes by comparing should and are. All right? Faith comes by comparing should and are. Remember that, okay? Faith comes by comparing should and are. Okay? Faith comes by comparing should and are. Because we want to continue on and discover exactly how we arrive at that idea. Paul says, for the love of Christ constrains or compels us. You may be saying to yourself, well, hold on here just a minute. Sean, what is so compelling about God's love? You know, I think if I think if we aren't compelled by God's love, either one of two things are going on. Either we haven't heard the true wet width and breadth and depth of Christ's love, or maybe something really bad is going on and we're just really, really, really spiritually dead. Maybe we don't want to let go of certain things in our lives and so we say, oh, that love is not that compelling. Or maybe we don't understand the should part of the seven words. But, you know, Paul says the love of Christ compels us. It constrains us. It pushes us forward. And he says this, because we judge thus. So Paul has us recognize that it's not just any old reason why God's love compels us. It's not just any old reason why Christ's love constrains us. He says there is a specific element of Christ's love that actually constrains me, that actually pushes me forward. And many of us perhaps have never recognized the implications of what Paul says next. Most people don't ever fully understand or embrace or accept this idea. But notice what he says. Because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. Paul says, for if one died for all. You know, that teaching sadly, is rejected by many, many Christians. Say, no, 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 Christ didn't die for all. He died for just the elect. I have some very dear Calvinist brothers. Not little brothers, but brothers in the spirit. And I've dialogued at length with them. One's a a pastor, the other one's a layperson. This idea that Christ died for only a select few is, along with the rest of the view, the worldview that it comes from, the, the theological paradigm it comes from, is one of the most deplorable views you can ever have. Because it says plainly that one died for all. Notice these quotations here. We looked at this a little bit this morning. Christ died for us because he found value in us. This is from Christ's Object Lessons. This is playing off the, 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 the passage we looked at this morning in Matthew 13. She says, Christ, the heavenly merchant man seeking goodly pearls, saw in lost humanity the what? The pearl of great price. He saw in us the pearl of great price. In man, defiled and ruined by sin, he saw the possibilities of redemption. 
hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict with Satan and that have been rescued by the power of love are more precious to the Redeemer than those who have never fallen. That is a powerful thought that we could, we could and we will spend eternity thinking about. There's, there's something that's more precious to the Savior about those of us who have fallen than those who never did. God looked upon humanity not as vile and worthless. He looked upon it in Christ, saw it as it might become through redeeming love. Jesus looked at us through the eyes of faith. He looked at us and said, what can my redeeming love do in their hearts and in their lives? He collected, notice now, he collected all the riches of the universe and laid them down in order to buy the pearl. Christ died, one died for all. That next quotation, we looked at it this morning as well. But Ellen White says what? To the death of Christ, we owe even this earthly life. Never The bread we eat is the purchase of his broken body. The water we drink is bought by his spilled blood. Never one saint or sinner eats his daily food, but he is nourished by the body and the blood of Christ. The cross of Calvary is stamped on every loaf. It is reflected in every water spring. This is the should compared to the are. This is the should compared to the are. Where should we be right now? Dead. We should never have existed. And yet, where are we? You know, when, when we realize that, it elicits a response of faith. I have in my margin right next to this verse, I have it in brackets, and I have in big capital letters, I have the word faith. This is faith. This is what goes on when our heart responds by faith. When we hear the word of God proclaimed, when we hear the gospel proclaimed, that good news, our hearts are drawn out in response and we find ourselves living to Mozart's sonatas instead of a sense of duty. I've talked at length with a number of, especially young people, because, and we were talking about this at lunch with some of the pastors our young people are precious, aren't they? Yet they have been given a lot of bad news. They've been given a lot of bad news, and to them, Adventism, and to some extent those who are not even Adventists, but just uh, evangelical Christians, to them, Christianity is is a sense of duty. Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts, and as, I, as I've tried to make clear, there's nothing wrong with do's and don'ts so long as they are presented in the proper context Amen. and accompanied by the love of Christ. Amen. So Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, notice the next part of the sentence, then all died. Now, I am not a King James Version only advocate nor a King James Version uh, enemy, okay? But the King James does not do it here in this verse. I'm sorry to break it to you. There are other verses where the King James comes out beautifully where other versions don't. 
This is not one of those cases. The King James Version says, if one died for all, therefore all were dead. Right? That's what you have in your King James Versions. But that is not what the original Greek says because the very same form that Paul uses to say that one died for all, he uses about what the implication is. Therefore all died. So if we're going to translate it one way, in the first part, we need to follow suit and translate it the same way in the second part. Both of these verbs in Greek, both of these words, they're the same word, I'm sorry, both times they're used as verbs, they are what is called an aorist tense, okay? A what tense? Aorist, aorist tense. I could call upon any number of our, our pastors here who are far better Greek scholars than I am and ask them what that means, and maybe you yourself already know, but the aorist tense denotes a completed action. It doesn't necessarily mean it happened in the past, but it denotes a very punctiliar, very specific point in time when that has happened. And so when Paul says that one died, meaning Jesus died at one point in time, right? At the cross of Calvary. When one died, therefore all died as well. Amen. The implications of that are very, very, very important and very, very astounding. I was very interested to read this from the SDA Bible Commentary. This is not the Ellen White notes. This is the regular notes by the, the commentators. Notice what they say here, though. In taking Adam's place, Christ became the head of the human race. Now that you've been prepped this morning by no man is an island, right? This is not all that hard for you to understand. But he says, they say, in taking Adam's place, Christ became the head of the human race and died on the cross as its what? Representative. Thus, in a sense... When he died, the entire race died with him. As he represented all men, so his death stood for the death of all. In him, all men did what? Died. He paid in full the claims of the law. Brothers and sisters, did you know that your, your, your debt for sin has already been paid and you were there in Christ when that happened? There is no reason, friend, there is no reason why you should ever experience the pains of hell. There is no reason. As a matter of fact, Jesus says that hell has been prepared for only certain individuals. And who was that? The devil and his angels. It is not meant for one single, any single one of us. You know, you hear often, sometimes, however, sometimes we hear, Certain things that happen, whether it's an earthquake in Haiti, whether it's uh, an earthquake in Japan, whether it's September 11, we hear this is God punishing his people for their sins. I tell you, friends, there's only one person who has ever experienced the punishment for sin in this entire universe. There is only one person who has ever experienced that. There's only one person who should ever have to experience that, and that is Jesus Christ. God does not punish us for our sins. If he did, we would be dead. Amen. Go with me to the book of Psalms because this passage in Psalms has a beautiful, beautiful way of putting it. Psalm chapter 101. Psalm 101. You've probably read this before. Sorry, 103. Psalm 103. Psalm 103. 
a psalm of David. Notice how what David writes, and if anybody knew this more than anyone knew about this, it would be David, wouldn't it? A man after God's own heart, yet a man who fell time and time again. Notice what he writes in Psalm 103, verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Friends, there is nothing that you suffer in life because of the fact that God is trying to punish you or, or, or give you the penalty for your sins. Adam and Eve there at the beginning. It was only by the grace and the mercy of God that they were not executed right then and there. You know, the book of Revelation says that Christ was the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. His death went back in time just as it goes forward in time. And from the beginning of the creation of the universe to the very ceaseless ages of eternity, we will, we will be alive only because of the death of Jesus. Amen. There's no other reason why we're alive. It's only based upon the death of Jesus Christ. Notice this quotation now from Ellen White. She says, For every human being, Christ has paid the election price. How many? Every human being, Christ has paid the election price. No one need be lost. Let me read that again. No one need be lost. All have been, how many? All have been redeemed. You know what redeemed means, what redemption means. It has this idea of going to a marketplace and in the, in the culture and time in which... The Bible was written, it was oftentimes when a slave was brought there and somebody came to that auction and they placed money down upon to redeem, to buy back, and to ultimately set free. All have been redeemed. To those who receive Christ as a personal Savior, that implies that Christ can at times be an impersonal Savior. In other words, Christ is everyone's Savior, but whether or not we accept Him as such, determines whether he is our personal Savior. To, to those who receive Christ as a personal Savior will be given power to become sons and daughters of God. Amen. An eternal life insurance policy has been provided for all. Beautiful. Beautiful. For the love of Christ compels us. And it's not just any part about the love of Christ that compels us. The, the specific reason, the specific part of Christ's love that compels us is that one died for all, therefore all died. Notice this next quotation. Let's just keep on rolling here from E.J. Wagner. This is powerful. This is powerful. Every creature and every created things thing springs from and depends upon God. There's no such thing as a self-made person, is there? If God were to take away his spirit, take away his grace, we'd all realize just real quickly how much we depend upon ourselves. All Every creature and every created thing springs from and depends upon God. Lucifer, now Satan, who originated sin, as well as men who have followed Satan in the sin, depend upon God for the life with which the sin is committed. 
You know, when you are, you and I are carrying out our acts and lives of sin, we're doing that with the very life God has given to us. The man who blasphemes God and denies his existence does so with the breath of life which God breathes into his nostrils. God says, Thou hast made me to serve with thy sins, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. It was God's life that was perverted by Lucifer from its rightful use and employed for sin and rebellion, and there has never been a single sin committed except with the life of God. Wow! The very sin I'm committing, I'm doing so with the life of God. How is that? How is that sound, and how do you think God feels about that? feels disappointed, doesn't he? We've all given people gifts only to see them trample upon them and essentially say, ah, I don't care. How God's heart must break when we trample upon the precious gift of life that he has given to us. It is for this reason that God in his infinite mercy and goodness was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses onto them. That's what the next portion says if we were to continue reading Paul. Inasmuch as sin was committed with God's life, although through no fault of God's, he assumed the responsibility for it. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what God did? I am going to assume responsibility for all the sins that you have committed. That's what the cross shows us. I'm going to take the blame for all the sins that have ever been committed. goes on to say, and gave up his life in order to be freed from it, to demonstrate the fact that he has no complicity with it, and to save all who will consent to die with him. Isn't that a beautiful hymn, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone? And all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Friends, Christ, in a unilateral decision, said, I am going to take the whole world into myself and bring them to Calvary. The question is, will you consent to experience that in your own life? Or you say, Jesus, that's nice, thank you for dying for me, but I don't want to die with you. I want to enjoy the benefits of life that you've purchased for me, but I don't want to, I don't want to experience the death that you've invited me to, to participate in. Of course, just to be clear, we're not talking about literal death here, are we? We're talking about death to self. About self being crucified with Christ. What were the seven words? Faith comes by comparing should, and are. Talked a little bit about this this morning, but I've just really, really been impressed with the fact of what we deserve and yet where we are. It has tremendous relevant application to my own life. How many times do I go through life feeling like I deserve something better? How many times do I feel slighted when somebody doesn't give me recognition? How many times do I feel frustrated when I pick up the phone and I call my bank 
They tell me they're going to start charging $5 a month to use a debit card, and I say to myself, what in the world? I've been a loyal customer at this bank for how many years? How many times do I, I feel just totally, totally frustrated when somebody doesn't give me what's due me, and I say, do they know who I am? Do they know who I am? Oh, that they would. To know that I'm a sinner who should be dead right now, except for the grace of God. And oh, that I would recognize that as well. I just got to be honest, I'm completely honest with you. There, you know, I've just given you an example from my own life. I watch my children in the morning for a couple hours, and then my my precious wife will will want to go and take a run or get a shower for a little while longer, and I say, wait a minute, I've just watched them for two hours. I deserve to have a break now. You've been there before, perhaps. You think, you know, I put in my time. I've done my diligent work. I've done what I'm supposed to do. Now I deserve something. Where is mine? Where is mine? And God says, the only thing you deserve is non-existence. So faith comes by comparing should and are. Friends, you and I should be dead. I, I sound like a broken record, I know. You know, some of us present the Christian message in this way. Instead of presenting the Christian message as where we should be, yet where we are, we present it as where we will be going unless we do something about it. That's how the Christian message is presented many times. That's how we say, you know what? If you want to go to heaven, if you want to avoid the hot place because that's where you deserve to go, you need to first repent and believe and confess and turn away from your life of sin. Friends, that is not enough. That message cannot compel us. That message cannot motivate us and change our hearts and bring them out into relationship with God. We view God, we're going to talk about this tomorrow, but we view God in that way as some type of taskmaster who we have to placate or we have to please or we have to jump through these hoops to first attain something and God says, no, 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 I have already given you something. I've already placed the gift in your hand. The very life that you are living, the very air that you are breathing has been purchased by my cross. So it's not about doing something in order to get something in return. It's about returning your heart, your affections, your love to me because I have already given you life and I have already given you my son. All these precious gifts have been given to us in Jesus, purchased by his death on Calvary. So Paul and Jesus and all the other New Testament and even Old Testament writers just wanted us to recognize where we should be and where we are. Notice what Paul goes on to say, however, because this has incredible implications for our lives. You know, when we are able to achieve this balance, this tension, this is, what I've been saying is nothing more than the law and the gospel being put together. Because the law tells us we should be dead right now, right? The gospel tells us we aren't because of God's grace. This is what we're talking about. 
That's what the law is supposed to do for us, is to help us recognize where we actually should be and where we are as sinners and yet where God has granted us life. That's the law and the gospel right there. But notice what Paul goes on to say. And So what I was saying is when we realize this, it gives us a new perspective and we live by Mozart's sonatas rather than a sense of duty. Notice what Paul goes on to say. And he died for how many again? All. All that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's what the life of faith looks like. It's about saying, Lord, you died for me. I want to live for you now. I want to live for you now. Next verse, however, is one as well that has tremendous implications interrelationally. Therefore, whenever you see that word, therefore, it tells you that Paul is using what he said just prior to this for the implications he is going to draw out. He says, therefore, therefore, we, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh because Paul was able to see what God saw and Paul recognized that all of us are on equal footing, all of us are on equal ground at the foot of the cross. There is no room to discriminate against somebody because of any reason under the sun. Paul says we're all equal, we're all at the same place, we're all at the foot of the cross. God looks at all of us the same way. And so the implication in my life now is this, just as God looks at me, I should be dead but I'm living, just as God looks at me and doesn't hold my sins against me, should I not act towards my brothers and sisters the same way? There's no... There's no no room in Paul's life to hold a grudge against people. There's no room in Paul's life to say, wait a minute, that person, they don't make enough money. They don't get enough baptisms. They don't give enough Bible studies. That person, I tell you what, they don't smell right. They don't dress right. There's no place for them at our church. Paul says, we don't regard anybody according to the flesh. We don't look at outward appearances. I think that's how the message puts it, the message translation. We don't judge based upon these superficial things because everybody is a child of God. We don't, let me say it, we don't judge people based on politics. We don't do that. We can disagree with one another. But we do so in love. It's not us versus them. It's us together. I know this may sound a little, a little too far to the left, but God's kingdom is inclusive. It's inclusive. That doesn't mean we just turn our eyes blind and we say, it doesn't matter what you do. It says, precisely because I have faith and confidence in you, I'm going to hold you accountable because I know you can become something better than what you are right now. Not in a judgmental way, not in a condemnatory way, but in a way that says, again, let me come alongside of you and tell you about the love that compels me, that God is inviting to make a difference in your life as well. 
Therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. How many problems in our churches would be solved if we followed Paul down the same path? All of them. All of them. I think this world would be a lot happier place as well if we were able to recognize what we deserve and yet where we are. Probably wouldn't have people who are grappling, grasping for more money. Probably wouldn't have Wall Street bankers who are trying to milk everybody for everything they're worth. Probably wouldn't have the people who don't like them feeling like they've been, they're entitled to whatever they can get. Because we'd say, you know what? I once was lost, but now I'm found. I should be dead, but I'm alive right now. Notice this as well from E.J. Wagner. Notice this. This is quite controversial, but he says, do you mean to teach universal salvation, someone may ask? He says, we mean to teach just what the Word of God teaches. Isn't that what we want to do, friends? We mean to teach just what the Word of God teaches, that the grace of God hath appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God has wrought out salvation for every man and has given it to him. But the majority spurn it and throw it away. The judgment, notice this, the judgment will reveal the fact that full salvation was given to every man and that the lost have deliberately thrown away their birthright possession. God is saying, what, have you, what are you doing with the gift of life I have given to you? Ultimately, those who are lost in the end would say, you know what, I prefer death to life. That's what the, that's what the judgment is going to reveal. Though all those who hate me love death. Isn't that what Proverbs says? And so they say, you know what, I don't want this gift you've given to me. I want to turn my back on it. I don't appreciate it, and I don't appreciate you for giving it to me. The love of Christ compels. They say, Pastor, hold on here. What do, what, do, what do we have to do here? What's our part to play here? Where is the fine print? I'm just sharing you know, uh, with uh, some folks out in Ohio, and I had that exact question. Somebody come up to me, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, we hear, you know, God works and man works. We must cooperate. You know, there's, there's something that we have to do. Notice what Ellen White says. The sinner may resist this love, may refuse to be drawn to Christ, but if he does not resist, he will be drawn to Jesus. Do we believe Jesus when he says, and I and I be, if I be lifted up, will draw all unto myself? By the way, when Christ was lifted up, did he really draw all to himself? Didn't we just read that he did? He drew all to himself. And the question is, will we allow that to be ours by experience as well? Will we go to the cross with Jesus and say, I'm willing to to die with you? Those in the very end times are, are... are known by the fact that they love not their lives to the death, right? They're willing to go to the cross of Christ to be there with him, to be crucified with him. There's a gentleman 
by the name of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. How many of you have ever heard of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf? All right, we have a few more than I expected. He was a gentleman who was the leader of a group known as the Moravian Brethren in Germany. And um, he emphasized a religion of the heart. He was actually very well acquainted, as many of you know, with John Wesley. Very influential in John Wesley's life and ministry until a little later on, I think they had a little bit of a falling out. But, but John Wesley was greatly influenced by Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. And as you probably are well aware, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to many, many, in many respects largely Wesleyan in our basic theology. For, for one thing, Seventh-day Adventists are some of the only individuals who do not believe, besides those who are Methodists and of the Wesley persuasion, Seventh-day Adventists are the one, some of the only Christians that believe that man has free will and that we are able to choose for ourselves without having God in his complete sovereignty make the decision for us. That's a very important belief, isn't it? That God has given us the freedom to choose. So we are Wesleyan, which means in some respects we are Zinzendorfian. Did you realize that? As Adventists, we're Zinzendorfians. But Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, he hadn't always been a Christian. In fact, in his younger years, he was not in the faith at all until he was about 16 or 17 years old and he was needing to, to fulfill some educational requirements and he went around the cities of Europe going to different museums and different art galleries until he came to the city of Dusseldorf there in Germany. And he came to an art gallery, and as he was walking through the art gallery, his eyes just stopped on a painting. It was a painting by an Italian painter named Domenico Fetti. And the title of the painting was simply Ecce Homo, which in Latin means, Behold the Man. Have you heard that expression before? Behold the man. Now there's a reason, just as a side note, why the Bible so many times tells us to simply look. Simply look and behold. Hebrews over and over and over and over again says, consider Jesus. Just consider him. Just look to him. Just look at him. That's all you got to do. Just look to him. It's not that hard. It's not that complicated. If we just look to him, and so this painting said, Behold the man. And it was a painting of Jesus, all bloodied and bruised, and a crown of thorn, thorns upon his head. And what caught von Zinzendorf's attention more than anything else was the words below it. The words of Jesus said, All this I did for thee. What doest thou for me? All this I did for thee. What doest thou for me? He asked the same question of us, friends. Out of a, a heart of love, he is appealing to us to respond the same way that Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf did. I tell you what, friends. Too often I am living my life from a sense of duty. I'm living my life from a sense of duty. And yet God is inviting us to behold that man and to see the same love that compelled Paul, Timothy, 
and every other Christian that has been willing to take up the cross. And as I said, our young people need to hear this. Our young people need to hear this. Because it happens too quickly that they get the wrong message. That's how life is all set up, sense of duty. I love the words of one of the verses for the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Whoever wrote it, I don't remember who it was. Someone probably knows. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Isn't that beautiful? I don't... I'm not owed anything. In fact, quite the opposite, I owe everything. And thus, I'm a debtor. I owe everything to God and his grace. And I'm constrained daily to live out a life of gratitude. And God's goodness is going to bind my wandering heart to himself. Father in heaven, I know that far too often my heart does wander. And I can't do anything about it. I do have a choice in the matter, I know that. But I need your drawing power to draw me moment by moment to the foot of the cross where I can be just one among many who are all on this journey together as we live by your grace through faith. So Lord, may these realizations that we should be dead, but we are alive. We should be lost, but we have been found. May that draw out of us a deeper appreciation and a deeper experience of repentance as we return our all to you, which is really not much in the grand scheme of things, and yet you long for us to give you our all. We pray that you would keep working until you finish and bring this whole thing to a completion. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Praise the Lord.